Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Rabbi Ben Common. He has a national platform as a scholar on the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and has led congregations in Toronto, New York, Cleveland, San Diego, and Laguna Woods, California. Since his ordination in 1978, Kamen has published hundreds of articles about community life in newspapers around the world, ranging from the New York Times to the International Herald Tribune. Ben is a nationally known clergyman, teacher, counselor, and the award-winning author of 11 books on human values, civil rights, and spirituality. His most recent book is The Blessing of Sorrow, Turning Grief into Healing. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Rabbi Ben Kamen. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to join you. You have written a great book called The Blessing of Sorrow, Turning Grief into Healing. I, I, I'm going to guess that's a hard pitch for a lot of people because people are not, uh, people generally don't embrace sorrow in, in, in contemporary American culture. And, and death, I mean, we, I grew up, my grandfather was a funeral director. And so as a kid, I saw the back, yeah. back end of it, so to speak. But we do it. We seem like we're a culture obsessed with sanitizing death, hiding death, yeah. and and you in your book you seem to think this is a pretty big mistake for yeah. us collectively. Yeah, thank you. You know, first of all, I appreciate your comment, and uh, there may be cases, uh, maybe a lot, where a person wouldn't turn to this book because this is the very symptom of the problem with the American culture when it comes to mortality. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be confronted with it. Uh, and I can talk more at length uh, about that. But it is, I, I wouldn't not write the book or hope that it get published, even if some people don't want to look at it, because the people who will look at it, I hope we get a lot of help. This is a big deal. Um, there, there is, I've doing this, been doing this for 40 years, and my kind of specialization is, is bereavement. And as the years have gone by, uh, funerals have become very extravagant. Uh, they become very theatrical. Um, these are all well-meaning people who are going this way, but it's, uh, you know, caskets have themes. And I talk about this in The Blessing of Sorrow. And there was even a case I remember years ago, I was down in Alabama. This is quite some time ago, and I came across a drive-through viewing uh, through a, a, a port in the side of the funeral home and that was going to take care of your visiting with the dead i, about, I worry about the carbon monoxide poison <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um but i and i i want everyone to, to do well I, I don't come into this with any judgmentalism on the contrary it's my responsibility i feel as a religious uh, leader to just uh, to point out some issues and to try to help people so people they're 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 going right back to work and you know you can go back but whenever you want, but take a few days, whatever that means to you, to reflect and to grieve. And people, I'm just going to go on, I'm going to work tomorrow, and everything is great, and there's this uh, very uh, dangerous stoicism. And uh, I just, a lot of people I've seen over the years, uh, wonderful people, literally got sick. You know, after, after a few months of, of, of handling grief this way by not handling it, by not confronting it. It is a wound, to the human soul. 
Yeah, and I'm so like, curious too. Yeah. You have a whole chapter in the book. I think it's the fourth chapter where you just deal with what to do after the funeral. And I think that this is so practical. And and one of the things I like about the book in general is it's it's more descriptive than prescriptive. I mean, you you're not into giving people one size fits all or add water and stir solutions. But I mean, that's you, right. Yeah, you are insistent that this is something. You got to be intentional about right whether you use traditional traditional religious you know norms for this or you do it through your own self awareness that you've got to be ready because this is going to leave a huge cavern when yeah. when when they when they you know I mean I once heard a preacher say to a crowd of young people that one day a group of people is going to throw dirt on you and go back to some musty church uh, hall and eat potato salad. <laughs> And and but then when they leave and the potato salad's gone and people pack up or leave the leave the yeah. casseroles or whatever you're yeah. sitting there and there's the cavern right I mean there's this huge empty thing that's the worst moment of all uh, and it's hard to uh, to to bypass it because there does come a point when the tuna salad it, if it's Jewish it's the tuna salad if it's if other faces potato salad whatever it is there's the, these offerings and a lot of food is brought much usually but that's okay but the issue for the grieving person for anyone who's mourning is to not give away control of themselves and their desire uh and their disciplined approach i love that word intentional you just used a moment ago i wish i did the book i don't think i did but um that's a difficult moment but it because you're something alone many in many cases or just a small group of family members so if the whole period of several days with visitors and people who ask you questions about how did he die and this kind of stuff, they, they don't mean to be complicated or uh, misguided, but they don't know what else to talk about. So the grievers and, you know, we've all I've I've been a griever. I, I've sat there and I've heard people ask me inane questions and um you, you have to get up and say, you know what, I, I, I'm tired. I just want to go upstairs for a while and spend some time alone. And they should understand. And But you have to be assertive about that, which is not as easy when you're freshly bereaved. But it's, it's a question of you have to protect yourself so you can really reflect and get some kind of initial cathartic movement going on out of your soul. Let the pain drain out. Uh, it can't be diverted or whitewashed by... Uh, platitudes from a faith system which again have their place but they can't be the only thing going on or people asking you or asking you inane questions like well how are you today well i've heard somebody get up and say well how do you think i am i just lost my wife and there was anger in the room there, there really was and I, I that pains me to even recall it do you think the reason why people ask inane questions is similar to the way people sort of, if somebody's going through real pain, rather than be present to it, because the other person's pain gives them anxiety. So in a way, to, exactly. I'll, I'll try to control it and fix it. I mean, are the inane questions to sort of attempt to fix it in the moment? Exactly. And again, I don't mean to see it like a broken record. I think the vast majority of people are well-meaning. But when we come to a, a house of mourning or even to a funeral, we are suddenly confronted with our own deeply held anxieties about mortality, and we just lose the ability to, it just, it just almost can't be avoided to communicate properly. But more than communicate properly, it's just to listen. We don't have to come into a house of grief and have to necessarily say something that's formulaic and whatnot. We shouldn't ask people how they're doing. 
I tell you, Scott, I have, you know, for 40 years, I've gone into houses of grieving. I'm not always perfect. But uh, usually what I say, I sit down at eye level with the person who's suffering. And I say to that person, I've been thinking a lot about you. And then I stop. And you know what? They invariably open up and just start talking. They want to be heard. They want to express. And there's got to be a comfort zone from them. So if it's a skewed comfort zone that's based on pro forma and stuff that doesn't even relate to that person because he or she may not be that religious, then they're not going to be comfortable. If we just say, well, I'm thinking about you, and just stop. It's okay not to talk. It's also very good not to talk. Grief is, uh, grief is a teacher when it sends us back to serve the living. So we have to be responsible for that. Martin Heidegger, yes. the philosopher in Being in Time, he talks about being unto, uh, unto death or toward death and how this idea that, you know, when you, when you really understand your death, it, it's just incredibly personal. You'll face it alone. It's not going to matter whether or not you were the club champion uh, at the golf course or whether or not you had the perfect 2.5 kids in the picket fence or you, that this is really ultimate stuff here. I, you, you say likewise in the first half, you say grief is personal, that, that, the, that this has to be an incredibly personal experience it's never private because it's so you're always part of a community but it's deeply personal right i mean that this has to be and i take it you don't mean in a kind of consumer designer way but but in a way that you really understand how your own soul is wired and so that you can work through this in a way that is really healing and not and and doesn't sort of take you into the jaws of, of of the worst of kind of the dark depressive States. Well, you're absolutely right, and and I, uh, I I I believe that my approach is exactly the opposite of being uh, connected to a commercialism or profit. That's the, that's between the family and uh, the funeral professionals, and most of them are, are good people. But it's still a business. I mean, they want you to buy a more expensive cancer casket. It's just it is a business. But um, I think you emphasize, and I appreciate that the personal nature, that's when we actually heal by traversing across the bridge, as I refer to it a number of times in in the blessing of sorrow, and sort out our emotions, and you bet, cry, scream. There's got to be a comfort zone somewhere, a comfortable place. And there are certain people that, when we are grieving, that we feel safe with in a more private setting, than others because they're, they're not, they're, we know they're not going to judge us. They'll sit there, bias, they may take a hand, uh, they'll say something uh, touching and caring, but not perform. It, you can't perform through death. It's, it's real. And it's the most common thing that every human being on this planet of some 7 billion people have in common. Yeah, it's interesting too because along the lines of the of the personal, you you list the stages of grief, and which I mean, if if, if there's something in sort of the death and loss sort of literature and conversation, this is something it, it, that probably is closer to the popular imagination. Kind of denial, I agree, isolation, I think that's, that's anger, well put, yeah, bargaining, depression, acceptance. But you know, it's it's it's. These are not meant to be necessarily sequential, right? That these things are oh, that these absolutely. things spiral around. It's not like okay, well, I'm going to go through uh, week one. I'm going to check off denial and isolation. Yeah. And I'm going to move on. To, I mean, these are things that it's almost more like cycles of grief, right? Rather than I can't, linear stages. Uh, I can't emphasize how correct you are enough. And even Kubler Ross, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who was so renowned and so compassionate and so intuitive, 
uh, indicated uh, that th- these aren't in the these aren't in any particular order. You you will feel depression one day. You'll feel you know one day, and the next day you'll be angry, and then so the the, the problem in the popular assumption of these uh, stages. And I think I understand it, I, but it's just unfortunate. Is that people think oh, I I have to go in this order. And if if they're not going in the order they see on a printed page, they feel that they're not doing something proper. And uh, feelings of guilt are rampant when you grieve, and that also can be exacerbated by that. I, I think we just have to get, get the message out um, that these are five elements of grief. I, I actually, as we're talking now, I would prefer, prefer to call them elements, because when we say stages, that's, that's confusing. And I, I do it myself, so I'm confusing people too. But I do tell people, just be. Don't worry in what order you're feeling these things. Be yourself, but grieve. Grieve. Remember, write things down. I mean, it's just, we have to recycle this process into a more private domain, even though the rest of us shouldn't suddenly withdraw. People need our support. They need our physical presence in a room when it, the grief is fresh. And they appreciate and need the, the other people are pouring the coffee and making the sandwiches. and It's lovely to do that. But it's what we, how we converse with them, which is so critical, because they're extremely vulnerable. So when we hit them with something that is, doesn't, just sounds a little hollow, um, that doesn't help. It defers them from the real grieving process they need to go through. You, you say something in the book, you, you, at several points in the book, you talk about the presence of the dead and, and, and your sort of reverently mysterious belief in the afterlife. I mean, you, you don't give detailed pictures or anything, but you, 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 you recount several experiences you've had yes. of, yeah. of, of, of the presence of the, 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 almost the psychic energy of the dead somehow in a way that transcends physical senses and and you have this great line I thought was brilliant. You said, because you're talking about, you know, people get manipulated by mediums and all these yeah. things. And you said, you know, we ought not to pursue the dead. We ought to let the dead pursue us. Yeah, absolutely. Could, could you unpack yeah. that a little bit? Well, uh, yes, I certainly would try. I'll tell you, the first thing is the reason why, and I thought about this before I introduced this area, this whole subject matter that you're discussing with me now, and that is whether we hear from the dead or not, and if we do, how should we react? Uh, frankly, I introduced it into the book because over the years, I've had too many really serious people, rational people, uh, people who I would say were very thoughtful, who um, reported such moments with the dead. And I, t- I don't tell them, well, he, you know, he's, he's not here. What, what, what good would that do? This is not about uh, a religious affirmation. It's personal. Uh, I just listen. But I don't contradict them because these the, the people that I, I I've listened to for the most part are people, as I mentioned, who you know they, they're they're not well crazy. Frankly, they're not crazy. I mean, they're just really thoughtful. So, and, and I experienced it um, as I told uh, the story in the book. Just a month after my father died, he died young and very suddenly. And as he probably picked up, uh, his legacy uh, in my heart and mine is a big part of this book. The impetus for the book. But he, you know, I was lying in bed uh, about a month later, a pleasant evening in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the spring, and uh, the drapes were reacting to a sweet breeze. And all of a sudden, I look up and I see uh, a bunch of what I perceive as lights, small lights. And they, uh, and I, I, I was not only was I not scared, I was feeling really good. I felt something good was happening, and sudden, and in time, the lights turned into uh, the image of my father. And I'm looking up and I'm seeing it. 
And I didn't hear anything audible, but I felt him saying to me, Ben, I'm okay. I'm okay. So what do I think of that? Well, I think that I'm not dumb. Uh, I think I've had a lot of experience with death, as many we all do. But this was real for me. And if it's real for someone, then let it be real. It's an element of, of comfort and compassion. And bottom line, while my book is practical more than it is spiritual, I think, uh, we just don't know. Nobody, nobody can absolutely say that the dead don't linger or they come back or they inspire it. Um, if, they don't, if we don't hear them talking to us, they certainly inspire us in, in, in our thoughts and making decisions. We think, what would my dad do? What, what would dad tell me? Well, that's an interaction with the dead, even though it may not be audible. So I just can't rule it out. And yes, I wanted to give people hope about this element, this mystical element of mortality and death and life, because I, I think it's comforting for them. And I don't mock it. I regard it seriously. That is a, yeah. something I appreciate about the tone of the discussion, right? Because there's a kind of there's a kind of village atheism and also a kind of folk religious way of talking about this, right? That neither of which probably touch the mystery of life and death. Yeah. Which it seems like you're trying to, to offer something from the best of the great traditions that's also open to the modern world we live in. Yes. And I also, not only as a rabbi, but as just simply an author, I, I write what I know. I, I, I try not to speculate. I write from real experience. There's nothing more viable than human experience, more informative, more life-changing. So this element of my discussion in this book is based on my uh, sense that it's, it's, it's not uncertain at all that these moments aren't real. And there's no reason to uh, just destroy them. It may be a bridge to a better healing later on. I, whatever it is, it's helping people. So I'm the last person who would say it, it, it can't be. It's just not so. Well, I, I, what, what right do I have to say such a thing? I'm only a person. And I experienced it. So, yeah, I feel, as you can tell, pretty strongly about it. I, I once heard somebody at a seminar, they were saying, you know, they asked people in the seminar to imagine what they, they'd want on their tombstone, like a you know, short thing, an epitaph. And he said that, you know, this is sort of, you know, your vision for your life. This is what you want. This is, you know, you tell this great story in the book about there's this French Jewish communities that the, the, the man of the household would make his kitchen table. Right. Where all yeah. the family conversation and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the meals were shared. And knowing well, knowing well that that table would be deconstructed when he died and become his coffin. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I think it still does happen in some some places, uh, primarily among French Jewry, because first of all, our faith system is pretty local. Uh, you know, it's, Jews operate one way in Poland, another way in Baltimore, and uh, oh, we're all the same basic beliefs, but it's, it's a very local culture. Uh, and we don't have, uh, you know, a pope or a father figure. So it lends itself to that. So some, I don't know how this custom developed in France, um, for the kitchen table to eventually become the same wood that's on uh, a man's casket and perhaps a woman, and is actually the structure of the of the coffin. And I found that to be so incredibly intuitive and helpful and meaningful. It's a vivid connection, not so much with a corpse. Forgive me for being so direct, but with a legacy, uh, a creative set of hands and mind. And it makes their words that we remember from them much more vivid and possible to understand. So um, 
I'm not advocating we start this custom in the United States, although I think it might be helpful. I want to share that there, it's just not cut and dry. It's nuanced in the same way life is wonderfully nuanced. Yeah, and, and, and you know, when we are, you know, Feuerbach says, you know, you are what you eat. He meant that quite literally, right? That we, yeah. are, we are decaying matter. And it's, it's, so in the, in the most convivial celebration, it, it's made possible by decay and, and death. Like, we, you know, we, yeah. you know the, the feast goes in our belly and we live, and yet the feast is decaying. So it makes this amazing connection between death and our sustenance. Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting analogy, and it's very, very worthwhile. Absolutely. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. I'm curious when you're, when you're working with families in grief, it's, it's one thing to grieve if it's a relative. I mean, there's no perfect families. You know, show me a family that's not dysfunctional. I'll show you a family that keeps good secrets, but, but there are some that are much more painful than others. And and I mean, I wonder how that, how the grief process it plays out when the, the, when the, when maybe children have to really put on airs or, you know, have to s- sort of pretend that their relationship to the deceased was, was less complicated than it was. I mean, you, you know, I mean, I'm wondering how that, how grief works when, when really there's this much pain, their, their, their life caused this much pain or maybe more than their death. Yeah. I hear you. And I'm, I'm obviously like anybody in my profession or anybody who is a compassionate officiant or a friend, there are situations like that. There is a lot of anonymous suffering in this world, and it becomes manifest quite often at the time of someone's death. So I have a responsibility here when I say I, I mean, every single clergy person or any other type of officiant or someone who is simply uh, helping the family. Uh, they have to feel free to discuss the flaws, the difficulties, and the painful acts in the course of our preparation for uh, the actual memorial service, in whatever case it may be, so that they thrash it out 
among themselves and each person within himself or herself. And I, if I'm the one who's privileged to actually speak a eulogy for someone, I, use, I always say something, but I do encourage family members to speak because th- they just know deeply that person uh, that I'm responsible to bless in death. I, I think I, I do make careful and disciplined uh, allusions to that this person was not always that easy. There are ways to say it without being blunt or mean-spirited, but in a way that kind of is, is turned around in a positive sense. It, uh, it was not always easy, but he also was this and this and that. Um, that also helps, I think, the people gathered for this because they're, they're, they know that this guy was a, not such a great person, if that's the case. And the, just the acknowledgement in this oblique, careful, respectful way is not only necessary, but it does help. It, re- it releases some tension. And we, we, sh- we, we really fail, those of us in this in bereavement, when people are done, uh, service concluded, and people will say, who is that? Who was he talking about? So I'm not about embellishment, but I am about kindness and softness. And the answer to this question and how we deal with it is, A, to get the family to discuss it. I ask them direct questions about this. I, I hear it sometimes. It's coming. And then I ask them to tell me more. And at the service, to, to find somewhere in between to both honor the person, but also not make him or her into a saint, which nobody ever was. Right, right. Every, there, every, everybody, nobody is, every, there's no, uh, everybody's on the sinner saint continuum, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you've mentioned dysfunction before. I mean, dysfunction is the, it's the main matter of life. I mean, if, all you need to do is read the book of Genesis and see all the sibling rivalry. Uh, the deceit, the infidelity. Uh, the book of Genesis would be a great m- manual for any modern psychiatrist or psychologist <laughs> to have it. Yeah, I mean, there's just, these are all people who are just people. They're just themselves. And some of the stuff they do is helpful, and some of the stuff they do is really damaging. And that's why I love the Scripture, because, it's, it's, you know, it's more than just about God. It's about the reality of human flaws. It's interesting, you know, Ernst Becker's, you know, wonderful, profound book, The Denial of Death. I mean, he he kind of argues, I guess, that all of human civilization, right, all of human culture is basically meant to deny, is basically in response and defiance to our mortality, right? That, that you, that, you yeah. know, we kind of, we do all these things to, to, to sort of fight the feeling of finitude, right? And, and, and there is something beautiful to that, to the human, you know, the human spirit. And yet we, we don't want, there's a certain kind of denial that's ultimately going to be debilitating, right? When we, if we're unrealistic about this, I'm wondering how do you, how do you kind of cultivate the spirit of affirming life and yet be realistic about the fact that it's, 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 it's finite. That's a wonderful question. Uh, and I appreciate the question. I think one answer is that uh, all of us should not suddenly be, you know, turn someone who's just died into someone he or she was not. Uh, that's just perfume. It's uh, cologne. Um, it doesn't really even enter beneath the skin of the issue, let alone the person that we've lost. And um, in fact, frankly, I have heard clergy people of all faiths, and I'm not out on this program to, to you know, to thrash the clergy. On the contrary, it's a wonderful profession. It's a difficult profession, but I, I've just heard clergy people do everything but what they should do at a funeral. T- 
talk about and get people to talk about a person as he or she really was. Because we cannot grieve for a person who's become sainted, as I mentioned before, because they're then they're in a, the mode of perfection, and we don't know what who we're talking about. I mean, we have to understand that the flaws made the person as clearly as the strengths did and the good stuff. Uh, look, I was once... Uh, Many years ago, when I was a young rabbi, I, I was I actually got to perform the funeral of a member of the mafia. This is most unusual, by the way. It's not a big occurrence. Is there a big honorarium for that? I mean, how does that pay? Uh, you just keep your mouth shut is the honorarium. <laughs> <laughs> but they these guys came in, um, and this was in Toronto when I was a young assistant rabbi. And uh, I mean, I, I, we all knew they were mafia. But they're members of the synagogue, and they actually were rather respectful, except one thing, they came to see me. I mean, I was all of 27 years old, and they said to me, look, Rabbi, uh, here's what you're going to say. And they gave me a piece of paper, and make it very religious. Um, but I'm dealing with people who are, are scammers anyway, so what else could I do? You know, so you have to make some adjustment to the reality of the family. And family history or family professions are part of the grieving process. Uh, but thankfully, the vast majority of those wonderful people that we are part of uh, their closure ceremonies are great people. But yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 I'm not saying, trying to pat myself on the back. I do very much do not uh, glamorize or sanitize when I'm involved in the death of someone because it is the most powerfully meaningful point in the life cycle that there is so let's give it the truth as best we can as i was reading your book this this chesterton quote kept coming to me gk chesterton says that when when a soldier is ambushed in that moment if he's going to survive he's got to yearn for life like water and yet be able to drink death like wine otherwise if he's got you know otherwise if he wants to save himself too much you know he'll he'll be he won't be able to defend himself, right? You know, he's got to have this careful balance. And yet, he, you know, so I wonder if, if something like the grieving process is not like that, right? This this acceptance of these things that are paradoxically intentioned, that you still have to go on loving life, even though there's this gap. I mean, there's this gash, right? I mean, it, that, that, that seems to spoil the taste. Yeah, uh, that's a fascinating uh, aphorism. Uh, I don't know if someone... Uh, God forbid a soldier is ambushed if at that moment of extraordinary pain and terror, if he or she is going to have the ability to be philosophical like that. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that the idea isn't valid. Um, I'll tell you what, something that I do also in all of the funeral services or memorial services or whatever they, what form they take, when they take place at the very end, um, there's a, a lot of blessings and uh, if it's a Jewish funeral and or a mixed funeral, many people want to hear something called the Mourner's Kaddish, which has been with the Jewish people and shared by others for over 2,000 years. It's an Aramaic. And I mentioned to them that this language is, is a cousin of Hebrew. It was the street language of the Judeans. But it's also the language that Jesus spoke in. And I tell this to Jews listening, or there, present, I should say, because this is another way of saying we're all mortal, we're all equal, we're all the same. You know, but uh, what I say at the, after that prayer is our service is concluded now, and the one thing we know is that John wants us to live. And when we live, we remember clearly. Uh, and I, I kind of emphasize this all through, that the answer to a death in a partial sense is that we continue to live well 
which allows us to remember. Because if nobody has ever left, you know, someday down the line, way down the line, there will be nobody left to remember that person. Then that person is gone. But as long as we're here, we're remembering him and thinking about what he wants us to do, and that is to live. Um, I think most people, parents who've died, grandparents, all the categories too, maybe not children, they, they, but people want to hear that John wants us to live. When I've taught when I've taught undergraduates philosophy, sometimes I've had them when we were studying working in the Platonic tradition. I'd have them read the death of Socrates, the trial of Socrates, and compare it to the death of Jesus because it's a very it's a it's a huge contrast. I mean, Socrates accepts it very stoically, whereas you read the Passion of Jesus, it's very he's, he's he it's not something he's you know he he really grapples with with death. You know, he, he's, he's literally sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane. I mean, it, it, it's, so, yeah. but I, I, I do that for them. Cause it, it's interesting. Cause it's, it's one of these big ultimate philosophical religious questions. What's the meaning of death? What's, how do we approach? It? I mean, I wonder how much do you find paradigmatic stories are helpful? You know, the, the, I mean, how do we, how do we learn about death through stories of archetypes or religious characters like that? I mean, or philosophical characters in the tradition. I mean, do you find those useful to form our, conception of what of what death and dying well my, means. my my answer is sincerely sometimes yes sometimes no um i uh repeat in the, in the book the blessing of sorrow that um uh, grief is is personal and also one reason for that it's also a function of family history and one personal faith beliefs and we have to listen to what take these all into consideration um i have to say that um I don't know that if in the uh, uh, the community, if how someone died is a, is something that we look to learn from or not learn from. I mean, we know about it, but we we are so, and we're not better than anybody else, and we're not the chosen people except to share what God gave us. That, that's all it is, and and that's a lot. But I, I think that we're we're, we're very life affirming, and. So we, when we when a funeral takes place that I perform, and they're Jewish or mixed or they're Christians, I choose to f- tell the person's story. That's what eulogy comes from a Greek word that means the story, and the story is what they did, what they accomplished, what they felt in life. I don't go into much about how they died. I mean, it's, it, it, when someone dies, their whole life is before us, not the last four months heaven forbid, in a, an ICU or in hospice, uh, although hospice is a wonderful thing. So I can't assert or affirm that I often turn in that direction, um, namely regarding how a person died as being uh, an influential force on how we remember that person or what we get from knowledge of that person's death. I do want to say with tremendous respect that the death of Jesus Christ is a completely different category. And um, uh, I, when I see a cross, for example, I see a sign of peace. Hmm. And so I have great regard for the, uh, I, you know, with, with, for the Christian faith. I honor it. Listen, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a faith. That it's helped a lot of people for a long time that we, the Jewish people, spawned. We're the parents. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that, that's, that's why you, we should think about it. So I, you know, when I go to a Catholic funeral, for example, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just sharing information. The, the priests generally speak a lot about Jesus um, and how Jesus died and what that meant and so forth. And I honor it and I respect it. And for those who are devout Catholics, it must really be helpful. 
I don't care how you get to helpful, but just get to helpful. Use the tools you have and your best in- instincts to understand where these people are coming from, and you'll find a way to balance everything out, religiously, philosophically, personally, and from the point of view of uh, scriptural stories. It's really interesting to me. John Paul II was, Pope John Paul II was very intentional what, at the end of his life when he was, to, you know, just crippled by Parkinson's and, and, and you know, mm-hmm. looked, did not look like the virile man that the 70s, you know, be not afraid, you know, from Poland. Yeah. And, and he was very intentional about being filmed like that. Mm-hmm. To show that yeah. there was still dignity, that he was still a, a member of the human community, that he was no less dignified because his body uh, didn't didn't it was giving out. And I wonder if we if we accepted finitude like that more, if it would prepare us better for loss. Like so much, it seems like so much of especially consumer culture is denying limits all the time, which which seems which struck right. me as what he did was so courageous because it's it was it's yeah. looking at in the face of of the finitude and 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 affirming life. Well, all I can say is that uh, as a Jew, as a human person, as a person who does believe in God, uh, I, I totally uh, I, am moved by that, that narrative, and I think it's very valid and uh, very healing and very helpful. You, you, at the end of this book, you talk about a series of losses, kind of the epilogue, the, the professional, personal ending of a marriage. I mean, just even yeah. losing a dog. I mean, just, for, I mean, oh, yeah. just the... Yeah. And it, it seems as though this book is kind of your your French table <laughs> of sorts. Is, is there, is that great? Is there something that's, of it that's like that for you? I, I think that's a great uh, insight, and I think it is. I've never thought, realized, or thought about that way, but I really commend you. Uh, I find that to be very comforting and validating, for that matter. And it, yes, I I could not disagree with that. It is, and I think that we all have to find a way uh, in this country to devise a, a French table of some kind. So, Because preparing for death doesn't mean when someone dies, we get upset and we try to deal with it. we got to think about this stuff all the time. We have to think about death. It's part of our lives. It, it's part of other people's lives. It is the, the ultimate teacher, as I truly believe, because it sent us back to serve and bless the living. It informs us. It matures us. It grows us, even as it pains us. But a lot of people come out of the process, down the line, after seriously thrashing it out and dealing with things that are very, very hard, better better suited to live. Anybody in our culture would do well to eat at this table for a little while. The Blessing of Sorrow is a great book. And I mean, yeah, I mean, this is what we all really need to figure out how to turn grief into healing. And, and you really offer a great picture of how that can work. And so I thank you for writing the book, your, your proverbial table, and, and thank you for talking to me about it. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Scott, and I really admire uh, your questions and your own uh, deep relationship with faith issues. Good for you. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find 
all the information there. Thanks to Ben for coming on the podcast. Please do check out his book, The Blessing of Sorrow, Turning Grief into Healing. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.